Welcome to the Price All Podcast. We have a very special episode today. We're honored to have Michael Goodman of Hudson Cook with us. Michael is uh, a, a, a lawyer who is a regulatory expert, especially when it comes to the Federal Trade Commission or FTC. Now, this is something we really haven't talked about on our channel today. And Michael has in the past, this is way long ago, uh, reviewed some of the stuff on our website uh, in terms of disclosing our sponsorships and, and things like that. So, Recently, the uh, FTC sent out a lot of letters to uh, various dietary supplement manufacturers, and we figured this is a good time for us to educate the audience in terms of FTC compliance. And so I brought him on. I invited him to the channel, and he graciously accepted. So thank you so much for coming, Michael. Can you please in introduce yourself and your firm a little bit, and then let's get into some of the nuts and bolts about what, um, what dietary supplement brands and stores should care about in terms of FTC compliance and maybe some stories about uh, where things can go wrong. Sure. Um, I started out my legal career at the Federal Trade Commission as a staff attorney in their Bureau of Consumer Protection. Um, I was there about five years, and then I joined Hudson Cook, and I've been here about 18 years. Most of my practice is in advertising compliance, um, and it doesn't have to be specific to any particular thing. Um, from the work that I do, it, an ad's an ad, and I can um, review just about any kind of ad for FTC compliance. Um, basically, what I do is put myself in the shoes of the regulator at the FTC and look at an ad, talk to the client, ask questions, and try to make sure that um, we've mitigated risks of FTC scrutiny as much as possible. Um, and then I also handle investigations for clients. If the FTC um, is considering bringing an enforcement action against a client, I can represent them in that. Um, and again, that's not industry specific. Um, that's just FTC specific. Um, my firm does not do a ton of work with um, the people in your space, but you and I have worked together and I enjoyed that. And um, again, the, with the work that I do, um, I, I can handle just about any kind of ad. Um, it doesn't matter as long as we ask the right questions and think about it from the regulator's perspective. Awesome. So uh, our consumers kind of uh, range anywhere from regular consumers all the way up to we also have viewers from uh, actual brand ownership, uh, retailers that might be using ads to increase their business, or even maybe uh, <clears throat> bigger stores like GNC Vitamin Shop, people like that. So to start off from a very basic point, could you give us uh, just some kind of ground level rules for things that you're looking for in advertising? I think specifically, we might want to think about uh, influencer advertising or influencer marketing, as well as, um, you know, diet and weight management, or maybe muscle type stuff. But overall, what are some general things that you're looking for when you're looking from the regulators pers uh, point of pers uh, perspective? That's a great place to start. And if I go on too long, just wave your hand and we can break it up a little bit. But basically, the FTC enforces a very basic standard when it comes to advertising. It's a prohibition on unfair or deceptive acts and practices. Um, and really everything the FTC does filters down to that one prohibition on unfair or deceptive practices. Um, an unfair practice is one that's likely to cause substantial injury that consumers cannot reasonably avoid and that isn't outweighed by countervailing benefits to consumers or to competition. Um, the other standard is the deception standard. It's the one that comes up much more often in advertising cases. Um, an actor practice can be challenged as deceptive if it's likely to mislead a consumer acting reasonably under the circumstances about a material fact. 
Um, and so when the FTC goes to um, goes out to the marketplace and looks around, those are basically the two standards that they have in mind when they're reviewing ads or other practices. What the FTC has done over the years is that the agency has been around over 100 years. And so it's had plenty of time to develop a body of law around that simple standard. And over time, the FTC has issued guides, uh, policy statements. It's when it's identified um, an area where a body of law is developed and they can provide some more specific guidance, they have done so. Um, and relevant to this conversation is number one, the substantiation policy statement uh, where the FTC explained how it looks at the substantiation um, standard when it's reviewing advertising. And number two is the guide that it's issued on endorsements and testimonials. That second thing, the endorsements and testimonials guide uh, came out in the 80s before we had social media. There were, I guess, there were always influencers, but not like we have today. And the FTC over the last few years has tried to modernize that guidance, which is now 40 years old, um, to try to make it um, more relevant today and also help people apply it. Um, because when you, when you read the guidance now and you're an influencer or you're working with an influencer, um, there needs to be a bridge between that old standard and what people are doing today. And the FTC has tried to help with that also. Awesome. So uh, I feel like there's so many different ways to take this, uh, but I do think that the endorsement probably is, is, is the most important section right now. Um, and we also probably should talk, talk about how businesses themselves represent uh, products because that, that recent guidance I think is, has really been pointed at uh, manufacturers, uh, retailers, and even ingredient creators and how they uh, sell their ingredients based on data they've created. So much of what we talk about in regards to the FTC comes down to like claims on actual products. Um, and I think that this could really talk about either harming people because these are things that are ingested, but probably most likely is much more about uh, being misleading. So could you talk to us a little bit about uh, what would be or what wouldn't be misleading in, in advertising for these products? Because things that come to mind for me re most recently are like the liver king issue where you know you have someone who is so incredibly larger than life talking about a product that may or may not take you to his level or what if what are some things that you look for that are red flags in these kinds of areas sure well for starters one thing that i do when reviewing an ad is just look for concrete claims in the ad and asking the client if the claim is true or not um, and if it's not then we go back and we revisit that claim and one of the things that that comes up a lot is when a client clients like to make unconditional claims. Um, if this product will deliver X result for you, um, without any kind of wiggle room for the fact that people's experiences may vary. And so a conversation I have with clients all the time is you're making an unconditional, unconditional claim here. Is it unconditionally true? Um, and if it is, then it can, we, it can stay. And if it's not, then we talk about ways to explain what the limitations of the claim are, or the conditions are. Consumers need to know that in order to properly evaluate the claim. Um, that takes us to the substantiation policy statement. Um, it's important for this audience, and it may not be intuitive um, what the FTC is getting at here. Um, what the FTC says is if an ad makes an objective claim, that is a claim that's capable of being supported by data or supported by substantiation, 
then consumers are going to think that you have support for that claim, proper support when you make it. Um, and it doesn't matter if your ad actually says studies show or doctors say, um, if you present an objective claim, if you use this product, you will get this result. Um, the FTC's view is consumers hear that to mean you have support for it, whether you said so or not, it's implied there. And so, and you need to have it when you make the claim. It's not enough to backfill your support later after you've made your claim. You need to have it in hand when you release your ad or make your statement on your website, whatever you do to tell the public about what your product is. And so um, the first key message for this group is if you're making performance claims, you need support and not just any support, support that the FTC would consider appropriate. Um, and that would be based on what the industry um, considers appropriate. Um, the FTC will ask in, in this particular context, what are the reasonable expectations for proper support? Is that what you have? And that will be the expectation. Okay. So it sounds like they're probably not going to like animal-based studies when you're making claims though. Can that, can that be assumed? Um, there's, there's a great resource. If you um, follow the FTC's letter that prompted this conversation, there's a link in there um, to, I can hold it up, awesome. <laughs> although it's backwards. Um, Health products compliance. So guides. yeah, if you're watching on YouTube, we'll put it in the show notes for anyone who's not watching in the video on YouTube. We also have the audio feeds. So what, what was the title of that real quick? Health products compliance guidance. Mm. And it's it's linked in this um, notice of penalty offenses letter that we um, that prompted this conversation. And what it talks yeah, about, it, it, yep. it talks about animal studies in particular. Um, this isn't a particular focus of mine in my practice, but I did read the guidance and what it says is there might be times, depending on the product and the claim, where you can get away with um, an animal testing claim. If the burden will be to show that it's reasonable to rely on an animal testing um, support for your claim. And if the FTC thinks that that's um, insufficient, then you've got exposure under the deception standard that you lack proper support. Um, it's really context specific. Um, and fact specific. Okay. So, uh, okay. Thank you for answering that. The, so it does sound like a little bit is subjective. I wanted to get back to the influencer stuff though, because, uh, there's a couple different ways that influencers can be used. Like you have some, and so maybe the, the, you can break between these two, but you have, at least in the sports nutrition space, you have affiliates who get a coupon code at a brand, use coupon code XYZ, you get 20% off, they get maybe a 15% commission. And then you also have influencers who are actually legitimately paid cash to actually post um, an Instagram video, we'll say. So there could be two different answers on this. I'm not sure if that matters or not. But uh, let's say let's say we have an influencer who is clearly on steroids, for instance, and goes and uses a product and says this product did certain you know certain things for me. This product helped me build more muscle. But it's pretty clear that this person is also using you know. Uh, substances that are beyond the, the dietary supplement. Is this something that the FTC would, would frown upon? And is there a differentiation? It's a super question. Is there a differentiation between just a, an affiliate who's going to get a commission and someone who's actually getting straight up cash from the company for making that video? That's a great question. And the way the FTC looks at it, the main fork in the road is if somebody is out there making statements about your product, the fork in the road is 
did you incentivize the person to talk about your product or not? Um, and we'll get into the types of incentives, but really what matters to the FTC is, um, did your company go out to this, this user and say, if you say something nice about us, we'll give you a coupon or we'll pay you money. If so, you're responsible for what the person says, and you also need to disclose that connection. If somebody's just out there reviewing products without any connection to you, um, and they say something good or bad about your product just out there in the world, um, you're not responsible um, for, for that unless you have a connection to that person. Um, as far as the type of incentive is concerned, um, it doesn't really matter whether you're giving someone money or a coupon um, or a discount, um, anything that you could do where the way the FTC looks at it is um, if the consumer knew about that relationship, would they evaluate the claim differently? If the answer is yes, then the FTC wants you to disclose that connection. So basically a, a good rule of thumb is that if you're being incentivized at all to even share content, you should be disclosing that there is a paid uh, relationship. Yes. Does the the location of that content, like they say, if this person does not get incentivized at all, but then that brand uses that content in an advertisement or shares that, is that an endorsement of that there? And because they're selling that product themselves and they're using that, then that content then is again privy to this type of regulation. Can you give me an example? So for instance, uh, I sell a product that, you know, helps you lose fat and someone who I don't pay, uh, buys the product, loves it, lo loses an exorbitant amount of weight and shares online that this product will make you lose 50 pounds. I obviously think the video is awesome because it says really good things about the product that I create. And I, so then I then share that product or that, that, that video, but it's still a ridiculous claim to say, you know, this will make you drop however much because I'm now sharing that. And I sell that product, even though I didn't pay this person, that's still a, a claim that she really shouldn't be shared. Um, that's another good point. So there's nothing to disclose in terms of a connection between you and the, then the user, but the FTC does say you're responsible for the content of, um, a testimonial like that, whether you paid the person or not, if you went out and got that video and are now using it to promote your products and services, you're posting that video on your site. Um, you're now responsible for the accuracy of what they've said. And so if they make a wild claim, um, you, you, you can't either, you can't use the video or if, if the wild claim is that they had a, an unusually positive experience, you can still post that, that, um, video if it's, if it's accurate, but you need to disclose what the typical or generally expected performance would be. It used to be, you could put something up there that said results, not typical. Um, but the FTC found that that was an ineffective disclosure and people didn't just weren't picking up on that. And so they revised the guidance to say, you now need to disclose what the generally expected experience would be if your testimonial is an unrealistic experience. S something I think advertisers get wrong is that if it, they, some people feel like, well, if my customer said it, I didn't say it, I should be able to just put it up there as a satisfied customer, what they said. Um, but once you bring it in, into your world under your control, whether it's on your website or in other marketing material, 
the FTC is going to hold you responsible for reviewing what the statement is, um, determining that it was true, um, and that it was um, representative of other people's experiences. Okay, thanks. So one thing that we see um, a lot of times we deal with FDA regulations. And one thing that we see a lot in our industry is that there's not a lot of enforcement. We see a lot of products that are made, maybe at least in smaller runs and smaller companies, everything, a lot of products that are clearly not fully F, uh, compliant per the FDA's guidelines or per what Congress wrote in 1994. Um, and so a lot of like smaller brands basically get away with certain things that a larger one wouldn't get away with or wouldn't even dare to try to get away with. I'm wondering, like, with do you see a similar situation with the FTC? Like, there are so many small brands in every industry, supplement industry or whatever other industry it is. Uh, are, are, is there a lot of, is there a lack of enforcement sometimes? Or like, are you... Like, what is the risk ratio here? And I, I'm wondering, like, if there are any, like, good war stories of times where smaller brands maybe have gotten gotten hit by the FTC, if it's kind of the same with what we see with the FDA. Um, that's a tough one. Um, the, the FTC certainly has many more potential targets than they have resources to go after. Um, and so it's, you'll, I'm sure you guys hear this, and I hear it too, where people say, well, you're telling me not to do this particular thing, but look at these 20 websites that are all doing that thing. Why can't I do it too? Um, they're making claims. There's no disclaimer. So why can't I? It must be fine. Um, and the reality is more likely that the FTC just doesn't have the resources to go after everything that would violate the FTC Act. So it may be the case that your risk of getting caught is low, but if you are caught, your risk of getting in trouble is high. Um, and so the risk you're running is, is anyone going to notice that I'm out there? Um, and that's, it's hard to predict. Um, the FTC has leadership that changes over time. Congress has priorities that change over time. Um, right now, privacy is a, is a huge issue. Um, I don't know if dietary supplements get the same attention right now that, that other issues do at the FTC. Um, but as someone who works on enforcement actions, if you're one of the unlucky people who gets picked to be the target of an investigation, um, all the advantages that you had for yourself in flying under the radar go up in a puff of smoke because it's so burdensome and expensive to be the subject of an enforcement action um, that I, I, I want clients and I would want your listeners to be concerned enough about that bad outcome to take it seriously. Um, because if you may be unlucky that you get picked, but if you are picked, then your next two years are really rough and um, really expensive. So we definitely want to get into privacy. I think that's something that Mike and I both share uh, an interest in. And I think that's a really important topic. Uh, but before we get there, um, in terms of you know, we touched on social media and things have changed. I'm actually super curious about what the FTC was doing a hundred years ago, because a hundred years ago, I assume it was just pretty much newspaper ads, but uh, it, in with the advent of social media <clears throat> advertising, whether it be through Snapchat, Facebook, Instagram, whatever, there are a lot of very large companies that are reviewing ads before they go public. Is there any sort of, um, cooperation between these types of large companies in terms of and kind of being an intra-industry enforcement uh, or a first line of defense to stop these kinds of issues or 
how, how has that worked into the whole kind of uh, ecosystem of this? Well, I, I know in some markets, Google, for example, may prohibit advertising for certain kinds of businesses, um, and they may prohibit certain types of claims, um, especially in the credit world, um, where my firm does a lot of work. Um, so there isn't like cooperation between um, those kinds of um, internet marketplaces and the regulators, um, but those marketplaces can be a first screen um, to look at an ad before it goes live. Um, I don't know that I would rely on that review to take the place of the review that I think each company should do for its own advertising. Um, but I have seen cases where Google has just said, we're not running this because it's a, it's a market we don't let, allow people to advertise or it's a claim we don't allow people to make. Gotcha. So, okay. You mentioned enforcement actions. I would love for you to walk me through like an enforcement action. What happens? You get the, you get the certified letter from the FTC and then it's like time to lawyer up. Is that when you oftentimes get contacted? Um, and it sounds like a two year hellish process. So can you, can, can you walk us through kind of how that all goes? Sure. The typical investigation begins with what's called a civil investigative demand, um, which is like a subpoena. And it's a, you, you're required to comply. You, you can try to get out from under it, but you'll lose. Um, and you can't just blow it off because you'll lose then too. Um, and so once you receive one of these things, um, you have to suspend all your document destruction processes and start to retain everything. And then you have to work through their requests for information and, and respond to them. Um, there are a couple different categories of requests that they make. Um, one is called an interrogatory, um, which is like a, a question that you respond to with a narrative response or data or a spreadsheet. Um, it's information. And then there are requests for documents where the FTC says, give us all your um, lead generator agreements. Um, if you have affiliate networks, like give us all the, rela the, the relationship documents. And the biggest burden there is they'll almost always ask for emails or other communications. Um, and those can be massive amounts of information to work through. Not all of it's responsive, but someone's got to look through it all and pick out what's responsive and what isn't. Um, and that takes a while and costs a lot. Um, these CIDs can also um, request um, testimony. So you'd have an investigational hearing where a company representative would be put under oath and a court reporter would be there and the FTC would spend the day asking that person questions about the business. Um, and these CIDs can also request reports um, where you have to take data, put it together and answer the FTC's request for information in that form. Um, Typically, the FTC will give you 30 days to respond. Um, it helps to have a lawyer who is familiar with the process because um, you can sometimes negotiate how much time you have to respond and get yourself time extensions. You can break the CID into parts and respond um, in waves so you don't have to do everything at once. Um, and you can also sometimes uh, successfully get the FTC to narrow the scope of a, of a question or of a CID and say, what you're asking is massive. I think what you really want to know is this smaller thing. So why don't you just ask for that instead of this massive request and you still get the information you're looking for. Um, 
after that, there's typically some downtime while the FTC processes all that information. And then typically the FTC finds something that they think is unlawful and you pivot from the investigation to the infant process, which begins with settlement discussions um, where maybe you can resolve it without going to court. That's ha- that that's typical. Or you can't, and then you the FTC sues you, and um, then you hash it out that way, which is another couple of years and a lot of a lot more money. So what you're describing here uh, sounds like a lot of money, just in general for the FTC. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of people involved, a lot of time. It's, I guess my question for you is: uh, you're talking kind of pre- previously about like risk management and whether or not people will get picked. It sounds to me like this whole situation, it costs the FTC a lot of money. They must be going after uh, companies and brands that are making a lot of money off of these uh, unethical business practices. Would, would you say that like most of these situations are going after large scale companies because it seems just like to just to employ the people to do this investigation would cost a lot of money itself? That's true. I'm not sure they're a profitable business, though, but yeah. (laughs) They certainly, they don't have unlimited resources, but they don't feel the same. They don't do the same cost-benefit analysis as a private company does. Um, They're not as afraid to lose as a a company might be. Um, Their exposure is not as great. Um, In terms of how they use their resources, um, it's not always the biggest companies. They have a few different motivations. One is to go after the companies that are doing the most economic harm. Um, And that could be a smaller company that's basically a scam um, that could be prosecuted criminally if there were resources for that. Um, There are times when the FTC is just the government's best option for stopping a fraud because the Department of Justice has other fish to fry. So the FTC will come after you for civil relief rather than criminal relief. and that's where you tend to see them going after the smaller guys is the ones that are just true scammers. Um, and uh, so the FTC wants that level of, of um, the marketplace to be concerned about an FTC action. Um, and then there are also times when the FTC will bundle a group of cases together. Um, each one might be on the smaller side, but they're hoping that by packaging them together and announcing them all at once, um, which they call a sweep, that they'll get more attention for that um, and get more deterrent effect out of it if they um, uh, bundle everything together. Okay. So kind of a, this is reminding me of something that happened last year that I wanted to bring up during this podcast. Uh, I'm not sure if you're super familiar with it, so please let us know if you're not. But uh, there was a group called Tina Truth in Advertising. I assume you're familiar with them. Uh, who came out with a with their own sort of uh, sweep where they named, I think, 40 brands in energy drinks that were marketing and branding <clears throat> with uh, candy and colors and all sorts of uh, assets that had they, they felt were marketing to children, which they found to be harmful um, <clears throat> or misleading or whatever. A lot of different reasons why the FTC might be involved. But my first question is, how often does the investigation actually start from the FTC or would it sometimes come from these uh, maybe trade groups? Um, and is advertising to children part of something that the FTC would deal with? Um, those are good questions. Um, the first question about the source of the, of the enforcement action, that can come from a lot of different places. 
Um, when I was at the FTC, one of the issues I worked on was email and spam. Um, and the chairman at the time, her mom got a suspicious email and that she gave it to her daughter who was running the FTC. Um, and that sort of filtered down to the staff. They take a look at this. Um, and so it can be that sort of anecdotal, informal FTC awareness. Um, it can come from Congress saying to the FTC, this is something we care about. We'd like to hear what you've been doing in this area. Um, so that will launch um, an initiative just because FTC wants to be responsive to Congress. Um, the FTC has a massive complaint database where consumers can um, just submit a form and it's searchable and the FTC can look for trends and they share that database with other law enforcement agencies at the federal and state level. Um, uh, and that's a common source of targets. Um, is if consumers are telling the FTC, um, this is something bad that's happening and it reaches like a critical mass of complaints, then the FTC is gonna say, all right, this is more than just noise. Let's take a look and see what's going on here. Um, and it can be from competitors Competitors don't often like to report on each other because they're worried that they're also sticking their neck out um, by just telling the FTC they're out there. Um, but it happens, and same with trade groups. Um, it's just, in my experience, people weigh, I'd like to tell the FTC about this bad thing that's happening, but on the other hand, I'm worried that could wind up rebounding to me and they'll take a look at me too and may not like what they see. Um, my sense is more often than not that scares people off from reporting on their competitors, but it happens. Oh, and then the second thing was on children. Um, the FTC does spend some time on that. There's a law that's called COPPA, which is about privacy of children's information in particular, that the, F the FTC has, um, that's a, there's a rule that they've come up with from that statute that they enforce about how companies can collect and share and use information on children. Um, as far as marketing to children is concerned, um, the FTC can go after that as a specialized category. Um, and a long time ago, they did a lot more of it. But um, in the late 70s, early 80s, there was a feeling in DC that the FTC was overreaching in terms of going after conduct that really didn't seem that bad, but the FTC was treating everything like an emergency. And Congress smacked them down budget-wise and said, you need to rethink how you're using your authority. And it's not on things like breakfast cereal being advertised on Saturday mornings. Like that's not how we want you to be spending people's money. Um, so revisit um, what you're doing. Um, and so as far as energy drinks and things, I would say like with um, um, e-cigarettes and things that have had a connection to children that people haven't been in happy with. Um, I would say unless there's that kind of um, health um, connection where this is really a product that kids should not be um, using or being um, encouraged to use, outside of that, I wouldn't expect the FTC to do much with the fact that it's to children. It's just if there's something about it that's harmful to children in particular, then yeah, that's something the FTC will pay attention to. Cool. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting case because there are some energy drinks that have like video games. There's collaborations happening where you have like um, authentic collaborations of like a Tetris video game on the can of an energy drink. And is that marketed to kids or is it more like 
going for the nostalgia effect because Tetris is really for older people at this point. Most, I don't think most like young kids are playing Tetris as much. So uh, that, that was kind of the interesting that, that happened there. Um, now you had mentioned privacy. This might not have much to do with the supplement industry, but before I get back into some supplement specific stuff, I'd like to know just what you think about um, what's the hot topic right now with privacy. And I assume like social media collection of your information, all that. But um, yeah, if you could share kind of the, the hot topic in privacy, I'd love to hear about it. I think what the big topic is there is companies that are monetizing consumers' data in ways that consumers don't understand. Um, so a consumer gives information to a company they do business with, and that company turns around, packages it, and sells it, and the consumer has no idea that that's happening. Um, I think that's something that's of particular concern to this today's commission. Um, it's not always an FTC Act violation to do something with consumers' data. Um, but my sense is when the FTC hears about that kind of data monetization, then their first thought is, do consumers know about it and did they agree to it and do they understand it? Um, and there are plenty of cases where those, those answers are not favorable to the company. People, I, I think it's common for people to have no idea how their data is being packaged and sold and used. and uh, this commission is concerned about that. Okay, thanks. So uh, let me let me bring that to price spot. Then we have a not a huge list, but it's a decently sized list of users who follow you know hot deal alerts, but then they specifically follow brands or categories. So let me say, let's say I have like eight thousand users who are following the pre workout supplements category, and so if there's a new product they get alerted about it. That's kind of how our system works. However, when they signed up, we said that we were not gonna sell their email addresses. And trust me, everyone, I'm not planning on ever doing this or anything, but sometimes a company gets sold or sometimes there's a change in leadership and they change, they wanna start monetizing that data. What is the process for that to happen? Is it like, are they able to do it at all? Or do they have to send out like a new opt-in? Or like, if I wanted to sell my pre-workout list and I pre I'm not, but I just like, as an example, how would, a company go about that or can they just simply not do it? Well, from, from the FTC's perspective, you're bound to your privacy promises um, basically forever. Um, and once you've said, this is what we do and don't do, that's your commitment. Um, the way to change is to get new permission from your users, um, including people who are your users under the old structure. If you wanna do something new with their data, you should go back to them and get their opt-in to it. To We've made a change. Do you want to be a part of it? And then retain a record of that consumer saying yes. Um, but there's the FTC has brought cases where, say, a company maybe has gone into bankruptcy and they want to sell their customer data as an asset. Um, uh, but if they've said previously, we will not sell your data, um, then they're barred from treating it like an asset. Um, and, and they're not able just because the circumstances have changed doesn't mean their promises are no good. Thank you. Good. That's a, that's actually what I want to hear. So good to hear. Um, okay. So we can't have a supplement claims type of discussion without getting into, uh, 2020 COVID, all the things that happened over the last few years, obviously, um, there have been an extraordinarily amount of crazy claims and situations. There's been a lot of research too. And, you know, now we know there are certain ingredients um, that, that could possibly like 
dampen the cytokine storm, for instance, or, uh, you know, as implied with the SARS-CoV-2 virus infection, for instance. But my personal opinion is that you're absolutely insane if you mention any of this stuff on your own website, whether or not that ingredient has been like studied to do so. Um, Can you can you tell us like a little bit about how COVID has changed some of this stuff? And uh, like, have you seen any uh, would you treat it differently or or similarly just to just everything else? Because there are now research studies helping with some ingredients. Um, Congress actually passed a COVID specific law for the FTC um, that created a path for the FTC to bring like streamlined enforcement actions for COVID related claims that seemed fishy, um, miracle cure type claims. Um, And the FTC has been pretty active um, in using that law. their cases take time, but I think they've racked up a, a good number of cases under that law in a short amount of time. And, it, and it's around unsubstantiated um, treatment um, um, and cure claims. Okay. So in general, like, would you suggest brands just stay away from it completely? Like, is that the, the general suggestion? I, I consider myself a conservative compliance lawyer. I try to give safe advice. Um, at the same time, I try not to say like, never do this yeah. because it's more a matter of how you do it than whether you do it. Um, some types of um, offers or ads just may not be workable, but I try not to be this, I try not to idea before it's had a chance. Um, but if you're gonna make a, a treatment claim, you, you need support saying backing up your claim and it needs to be robust. Otherwise, you can expect um, some negative feedback from the FTC. Yeah, it definitely seems like there's risk. Uh, like, so, but um, can you, can we say something like may, su- may support immune system function or may support immunity? Like, I'm not mentioning SARS or Corona or anything like that, but there's decent data on some of these ingredients that, that it does help with general immunity, uh, even if it's vitamin C helping you get over a cold a little bit quicker. That's been well researched at this point. So, it seems like some brands got got hit wanting to go too hard in the paint, um, and so a lot of a lot of them have been slapped and don't want to go there again. But can we still say like may support immunity or things like that? Um, that's an important question, and I think one thing I want your audience to know is under FTC law, you're responsible not just for the literal words in your ad, but also the net impression of your ad as well as any reasonable interpretation of your ad. Um, And the net impression standard is important because what it means is you can be judged by by just like the headline of your ad and fine print isn't always going to be successful at um, giving the rest of the story. And so one thing I do when I review advertising is um, try to assess what I think the net impression is. And if you have a misleading claim in big letters and in little letters you explain away the misleading claim um, that's not a workable model similarly if you make a claim like this may have beneficial effects um, i think it's likely the ftc would say consumers don't appreciate may especially when it comes to health they're going to want good news and so they're going to kind of read past the may so oftentimes uh so in, in our industry you you can obviously you have to deal with the FDA with your claims as well because uh, 
we don't want to be telling people that natural things will be uh, helping with diseases or uh, conditions. But we rarely hear about the the other side of this, which is the FTC enforcing on it. Uh, with the FDA, for instance, uh, a very popular category would be like blood pressure supplements, which uh, may help uh, balancing blood pressure. It's it's not going to lower your blood pressure. It's not going to fix your blood pressure, but it it it's going to help encourage it. I guess my, my question it kind of goes back again is like we, we, we only see the FDA enforcing when things have to do with with actual drug and disease claims. Do you have any experience with the FTC kind of overstepping, maybe not overstepping because it is their, their right, but like going into that land in terms of what F, the FDA does allow, but because this is on an advertisement, they'll then step in and say something? Well, with this um, package of information that they put out, um, in April that prompted um, this session was this notice of penalty offenses. Um, and some of the guidance there, the FTC is basically getting at the same point you're making, which is they can cover the same territory as the FDA. And that's one of the messages they had for the public was we're here too. Um, and we have our own standards to enforce. This isn't just something that's regulated by the FDA. Um, but I don't know that I see the kind of robust enforcement history here for the FTC that I see in other areas that they're responsible for. And part of that may be because they have a enforcement partner that they can try to rely on and say, we both have jurisdiction over this. This is more your area than mine. Why don't you take the lead on it? And I'll focus on something else. Um, I imagine there's some of that happening, even if um, they don't say that out loud. Yeah, because to me, uh, there were, I think, just under 700 companies were listed on that uh, notice. Uh, a large portion of them were dietary supplements, but there were also pharmaceutical companies in there, which is obviously going to be a bigger, uh, you know, target for the FTC. It's probably just more money and more uh, widespread distribution. Uh, but there also were manufacturers of uh, nutraceutical ingredients from overseas in there as well. There, there was a large variety of different brands in there. Uh, which was was pretty interesting to see. Uh, Mike, did you have anything to add? I think you had something before. No, I mean, I, I have like a kind of a different question. I, I guess from the actions um, from that letter that was sent, have uh, is there anything else that we should know about that that we haven't touched on yet in this discussion? Uh, a couple things. Um, I want to say a little bit about why the FTC is doing this because um, it's a yeah. it's something that in their long history, you don't see much of. It's these notice of penalty offenses. Um, and this might get a little esoteric for the podcast, but I'll give it a shot and see if I can um, make it interesting. Um, basically, the FTC Act prohibits deception. And um, for years, the FTC has used its enforcement authority to go to court and say, this company was deceptive, we want to take back the money that consumers paid them and give it, return it to consumers um, or disgorge their ill-gotten gains. So make it so that company hasn't profited from their deceptive acts and practices. And for decades, um, courts went along with that and said, we think the FTC Act gives you the ability to take money back from defendants when they've committed an unfair deceptive act or practice. And that has been how things operated for many years. Um, in 2021, the Supreme Court unanimously held that all of that history was wrong. 
Um, and what they said was, um, if the FTC is going after you for a deceptive act or practice, and that's all you've done wrong, the FTC Act does not give the FTC the authority it said it had to get money back. It's more to it than that, but at a high level, that's basically what the FTC, what the Supreme Court said was, um, everybody's been doing this wrong and giving the FTC more power than Congress gave them. And so all of a sudden, um, the, uh, I, a really important spigot was closed off for the FTC and how they did their job. They were they were used to getting lots of money from lots of defendants, and all of a sudden they can't. And so they had to look around for, I mean, one of the things they want is telling Congress, like, please fix the law and let us go back to what we were doing before. That has not happened yet. So the FTC has spent the last two years saying, what are what other tools are available to us to get money from defendants? One is um to allege that a company violated a rule not just the ftc act like maybe you've heard of the telemarketing sales rule which has the do not call list um that gives the availability for monetary penalties um so one thing we're seeing a lot more of than we used to was rule violations in ftc act cases another thing is this notice of penalty offenses which says if um, the FTC determines that someone violated the law. And if the FTC puts companies on notice that that has happened, that this practice has been found to be unlawful. And then that company, after getting that notice, makes that same violation. The FTC Act says you can get money from that defendant if all those things are in place. So the reason they sent those 700 letters is now, if any of those 700 um, violates the FTC Act in a way that's described in that notice, the FTC is going to argue now you're, you're on the hook for money, not just um, not doing what you did before. The clock just started with those letters. Yeah. Ooh, okay. That's 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 the, that's the clip we're sharing at LinkedIn right there. That's, that's something that I think a lot of people need to know about. Wow. Okay. Um, Can I ask then specifically on that? They named these, like, I think it was like 698 companies. If you weren't named on that letter, uh, can you sleep a little better at night knowing that you weren't specifically named there? Or like, because there was a lot of uh, like confusion over why these people were named if they had specifically done something to be named. Because uh, it seems to be just like kind of just putting on notice rather than a, a warning letter um, for a specific action. The, the letters say, we haven't found that you've done anything wrong. We're sending this letter to a lot of people. Um, if you did not get the letter, then you can sleep a little easier because the FTC's burden is to show that you had actual notice that a particular practice had been found to be unlawful. So the FTC is going to use these letters to say, that's your notice. So if you got one, you got notice. If you didn't get one, the FTC is going to have to show notice some other way. Okay. Interesting. The, there was a lot of... Um, as for how they picked those 700, um, that I don't know. Um, it, it felt like they cast a very wide net. And so they may have just had um, investigators go out and say, let's find hundreds of people all doing in the same industry and let's send a notice to all of them. And um, 
we'll meet back in eight weeks and see what our list looks like. And it could have been just that. If, is it, if I did really want to know how they went about that process, I was really into that game. Um, is that something you can get from like a Freedom of Information Act request for you? Maybe. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe. Okay. <laughs> That's crazy. Okay. Wow. Uh, well, thanks for, for saying that. Um, I don't know if Ben had anything else. In the supplement world, there was a couple of things I kind of wanted to to touch on. Like, I, I And I'm not sure if you get have gotten into this or anything, but some of some certain words have become kind of hot, such as um, natural, for instance. Do you have you followed any of that at all? Like natural. Um, there's yeah, there's like three phrases that I wanted to get into, like natural and then clinically proven. The word proven seems like it's kind of a, a hot word that you might want to stay away from. And then you, you had mentioned doctor recommended earlier on. So I kind of want to talk about those specifically, if those are certain ones that maybe just people should stay away from or what you think. I don't have a ton of experience on that specific issue. Um, the way the FTC would look at it, I think, is to say when consumers hear that phrase in an ad, clinically proven, what do they think it means? Um, and the FTC would be less concerned with what it literally means and more concerned with what consumers think it means. Um, because that's what the deception standard does, is they say, is a, are consumers being misled? And they, they answer that question by comparing what consumers think a claim meant with what it actually meant. If those two things are different, that's where deception can come in. And so if consumers think clinically proven means um, a particular level of rigorous um, analysis, and you don't have that, then you've got a problem. Um, but the, I think that analysis starts with what do consumers think that means? Um, same with like doctor recommended or, or even natural. The FTC has guidance on specific types of claims like made in the USA um, and also some energy specific claims. I can't remember if there's one on use of the word natural, um, I, maybe organic, there might be one. Um, so that would be a place to start. Yeah, for instance, uh, on our side, made in the USA is a very actionable uh, claim in our industry because while most products in nutraceuticals are literally manufactured in the USA, they are almost always using constituents from around the world. China, Japan, Brazil, Germany, very popular places to manufacture nutraceutical ingredients. So <clears throat> pretty much anyone who has ever stated made in the USA on a label has gotten a uh, letter from a lawyer in California and has a switch to uh, made in the USA using ingredients from a uh, source worldwide. Um, I have to imagine that natural is heavily uh, litigated over as well. Um, you know, I'm kind of reminded of pretty much any food documentary I've ever watched talking about, you know, free range chickens or grass fed cows or uh, organic is probably another really big buzzword we could add to the mix here where there's a very technical definition of what it means. But absolutely, you know, I know when my mom goes to the market and she sees grass fed beef, she's imagining a cow in a very large pasture with way more space than the cow probably actually had. Uh, and, and I definitely, like, I'm, I mean, I used to be a vegetarian. Like, I, I know that that ethical implication of those words mean a lot to a lot of people, even though in reality, they probably don't amount to much. I've seen an explanation of all the claims around eggs. Um, and there's like 10 different ways eggs get advertised. And 
that had a, a little explanation of what each claim, what it sounds like and what it is. And um, they can be pretty different. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, most people are familiar with Super Size Me, the movie. Uh, I don't think a lot of people know there's a, there's a sequel where it was all about chicken farming. And uh, I forget which one it is. It's what you're referring to. But, you know, I think it's like uh, cage free just means that they have like a three foot access to like sunlight pretty much it's 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 it really is not what you would think it actually is and uh th that stuff yeah. is rampant in our industry as well i mean with doctor recommended or natural or you know most of these ingredients are synthetically produced they're you know they're not derived from a natural source and so there's a lot of buzzwords around it um are th would you say that there's any sort of uh comparison to another industry where like ethical standpoints are invoked uh, that that you've had experience with, or like some sort of, like like the the implication of what you're talking about with how consumers feel when they read something. I think that's like, I, I, there's got to be a parallel to this because in our industry, people are consuming these products to better their lifestyle, and that's like a really personal uh, uh like emotion that when when you read a certain claim, cosmetics, cosmetics could be yeah maybe. <sighs> That's, probably That's an interesting question for me. My firm and my practice have a focus on financial products, consumer financial services. Um, so I have less experience with cosmetics and, and supplements, but financial products can have that similar, A, you can have a vulnerable group of people, people who are under a lot of financial stress, um, and there can be some ethical issues around finance. Um, probably not the same as things you actually eat, but you know, it's still a very personal part of life, um, how you manage your finances and, um, and how you advertise to people who are under financial stress. Um, I could see some similarities there. Definitely. So this is completely off topic for general price, but we do have a lot of followers um, and users in our discord community who are into cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. So have you, you mentioned finance. I have to ask, like, have you gotten into any of those types of cases that you could quickly just give us a story on or anything like that? I haven't personally, I'm sorry to, to disappoint you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I haven't had that kind of work yet. Gotcha. Okay. Good to know. Um, overall, like now this has been very educational, especially regarding the letter that was sent to all those brands and everything. Um, if anyone were to want to follow your content, I don't know if you have anything else to say, but if not, I'd love to, uh, at least like if everyone wanted to follow you or contact you, uh, what would be the best way to do that? Uh, I'd say the best way would be my firm's website, um, hudco.com. And I have my bio there and my contact information. All right, great. Hudco.com. And uh, on the show notes, would you want me to share your LinkedIn profile or anything like that? Sure. Okay. So yeah, everyone can check that out too. We've been getting pretty active in LinkedIn and I'm sure that's a whole other word, world of different types of uh, claims and everything. But uh, Michael, unless you have anything else to add about about the recent letters and everything else, I, I, I greatly thank you for coming on and giving us a little bit of education. This is definitely um, a topic that is not discussed enough in our industry until it's too late. And it sounds like to me, the clock just started for a lot of people. And that's like kind of why we wanted to have this discussion. And it seems like... Um, it's possibly more important than a lot of people are thinking. So I'm glad we had you here for sure. Well, thanks. Um, I, I like to get the chance to explain to people what the FTC is all about. Um, uh, Cause it, uh, people are just living their lives, not thinking about the FTC, but um, when you hear from them, it can be a not great experience. And so if I can help some people 
avoid that, um, I'd like to. Great. Well, thank you. We'll get this up. And then, uh, yeah, greatly appreciate your time. Thanks, Michael. Thank you very much.